Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, is the world a safer place now that Donald Trump has taken out Iran's top military leader? More pot products coming to a store near you. And the World Juniors are still celebrating. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We've been following what's been happening in the United States. Obviously, Donald Trump giving the okay to take out Iraq's top military man. Uh, We've seen over the course of the weekend uh, the fallout from that. Here is a clip of the president uh, before the weekend justifying what had happened. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. Uh, and this has, has so many has had so many layers since that discussion, including Iraq wanting everybody out, the chatter of sanctions, everybody wondering what retaliation is going to be, uh, and the questions just continue. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Uh, and this day, as in all of the others, sometimes there's so much stuff going on, we just do not know where to start. But let's start with this and, and what happened uh, at, the, at the beginning of the weekend. And uh, even um, Secretary of State Pompeo said that they had to get this man because there was evidence out there that something was going to happen. Other targets were going to be hit. I guess you could make that assumption anyway, considering the history of this person. But was this, was he an impending threat? Do we know? Is is the White House moving forward with that story or walking it back? Well, I mean, it's unclear right now because uh, Secretary Pompeo was visiting the Sunday shows for most of the morning yesterday. And when asked point blank each time, what are these imminent threats? What is it that uh, Soleimani was potentially uh, sent to carry out or potentially threatening uh, U.S. interests with? Uh, the secretary simply bypassed them and said that this was a bad guy that was taken off the field and kind of gave some kudos to uh, the president for going forward with this. Uh, we know that there was a uh, letter or at least a report that was sent to uh, the so-called Gang of Eight in Congress who are in charge or who are at least tasked with understanding what's going on uh, when it comes to foreign military actions overseas. Uh, but the entire report has been uh, you know, deemed as classified, so nobody's able to actually see or discuss what is inside there. We don't know if there was a threat. We don't know uh, if Soleimani was actually planning something, we simply are told to take the word uh, of the president, and it's simply leaving questions from Democrats to say, if there was no threat, how do, or at least if you're telling us that there was a threat, but we don't know what it is, how can we guarantee that your plan of action was the right one? Uh, there you go. So does the penalty fit the crime if we do not know what that action would have been or was going to be? 
and that's what the question is right now, because if the president decided to take military action out and uh, and and ultimately kill a leading general of a country inside a different country, inside a sovereign nation in Iraq, when they took out the Iranian military leader, uh, there are potentials here for uh, Democrats to say that the president breached uh, the rules. And when it comes to uh, how war needs to be carried out and how attacks need to be carried out, uh, there are a number of questions that are simply unanswered right now that Democrats are really trying to get a hold of uh, because they simply don't have the answers coming from either the president or from those who are kind of whispering to the president about what to do. What is happening on this today? Iraq wants everybody out. How is the U.S. responding to that? Well, so that was a it was a vote that was taken up in the Iraqi parliament uh, last night, essentially saying, look, you, you, you kind of violated our uh, sovereignty by carrying out this attack on January 3rd, this airstrike. Uh, and because of that, we want you to leave Iraqi property, leave your military bases and kind of, you know, spread out elsewhere. The president uh, not happy with that. He looked at Iraq uh, and said, you know, simply, if you're going to kick us out, we're going to go ahead and we're going to sanction you, uh, despite the fact that Iraq really will have done nothing wrong. Uh, the problem that Iraq may run into with this is if we see an all out withdrawal of U.S. troops, we run the risk of, uh, you know, potentially having Iran decide to flex their muscle a little a little more and and provide a little more infiltration into Iraq. We also run the risk of seeing potential uh, resurgency of the so-called Islamic State. The U.S. military, Iraq's military worked side by side to get rid uh, of that kind of cancer on that country. And without military might there from the U.S., we run the risk of, you know, kind of destabilizing an already unstable uh, region. So there are potentially ramifications, but right now we don't actually have a time frame or how it would actually happen uh, if these military uh, kind of installations have to be pulled out. Uh, Donald Trump uh, said that there was 52 targets that he could uh, they could hit uh, uh, in, in order to uh, if there is some sort of retaliation. He also mentioned cultural sites, which we all know now is a war crime. Uh, Pompeo on the Sunday show saying, no, no, it's all going to be within the law, basically blowing off what he said. Yet the, the, the president has doubled down on this. Why even go there? Simply because it's a threat the president can make. You'll also take note to the fact that the president made this initial threat on Twitter. He put a tweet out. He didn't do it in front of the media who would be able to fight back with questions uh, and demands of answers uh, from the president, fully knowing that what he's doing, not only uh, is it, you know, against uh, kind of the, the, the international law when it comes to war crimes. It could be tried in the International Criminal Court. It happened in 2012 with the leader of Al-Qaeda who was uh, 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 being prosecuted for blowing up religious artifacts facts in Timbuktu, uh, but it also goes against U.S. military law by saying that proportionality would not be uh, in play here. There's a rule that if there's a crime uh, that's committed by one country, say an attack on another country, the U.S. response has to be equal to or less than what that crime was. So, you know, the president says that this all is linked to a U.S. service member who died during an Iranian strike, uh, going up and blowing up uh, and kind of destroying cultural icons in Iran would be a step too far and could lead the president to be in uh, some hot water. Kellyanne Conway, counselor to the president, was approached about this today at the White House. She simply repeated the president's remarks, saying that it's what the president said. Uh, you know, she couldn't quite give an answer when she, 
people she was asked, you know, Secretary Pompeo echoed this and she was trying to dance around the topic. The problem is that the president has already said his tweets speak for themselves. And at the end of the day, nobody has any idea what the president means or intends to do other than the president. How is this? What, what's the world response to this a couple of days later? Things have settled down a bit. Uh, people have realized the extreme action that was taken here. Um, and many have said that the world is is now a more unsafe place. What sort of message does this send? Well, there's the fear that the world is a more unsafe place, A, because of these um, perceived threats that the U.S. is saying existed against them uh, when it comes to how they believed Iran was going to be uh, carrying themselves out, or at least how potentially Iranian proxies might have uh, have carried out threats against U.S. and U.S. interests. But there is a now kind of global fear that that, you know, any kind of blink that lasts too long could potentially spark any kind of conflict. Russia has now stepped in uh, to simply say, look, this needs to be settled down a little bit. We need to have a better conversation, fully understanding that if there is some kind of conflict that starts up, Russia is going to have to side with Syria, who would side with Iran uh, and be kind of pulled into this. We know the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, has uh, traveled to Moscow to have a discussion about rising tensions in the Middle East uh, when it comes to uh, kind of what's all happening. So this is no longer just a a U.S.-Iran kind of fighting with each other by way of Iraq. There are now other global uh, uh, countries and leaders who are getting involved in this. Uh, The one problem that kind of lingers is the fact that if something were to build up in the Middle East, America has done a uh, disservice to themselves by cutting their ties with many NATO members. The president has uh, gone on numerous rants against leaders of uh, the European Union and and uh, and countries that are supposed to be in line uh, with the United States. He's also gone against his own intelligence uh, committee and officials. So, I mean, th- there are a good number of problems that could be facing the U.S., both domestically and at, in the world at large, if this does escalate uh, beyond where it is right now. Donald Trump said that this should have been done long ago. Why was it not? I mean, clearly they knew where this guy was. They had the intelligence. Why did no other leader do this? That's a question that uh, former administration officials uh, from the Bush administration, from the Obama administration, have been facing for the last several days. Uh, the president simply uh, you know, is doing it so he's not compared to former administrations. There is a bit of an ego issue when you talk about things that did and did not happen in the Obama administration, and the president wants to differ himself whether or not it works for the good or for the worse. Uh, he wants to be different than that. He says this was an opportunity to take out uh, uh, Soleimani, so he did it, much like he used this as an opportunity to take out uh, the, the leader of the so-called uh, Islamic State towards the end of last year. It was just an opportunity to do it. I, I you know, Under previous administrations, they had the reasoning for not going after certain people. They had the reasoning for not potentially escalating situations in volatile regions, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, you know, th- there is, you know, broad consensus from Democrats and Republicans that Soleimani was an evil person and that should not have been in the position that he was in and had the blood of t- tens of thousands of people on his hands before he died. Uh, there's just a question as to whether or not and what the appropriate route of action should have been to remove him from that position. So what are people speculating will happen in the short term here, Reggie? 
Well, I mean, look, you have some people who fear that this could be, you know, on the brink of World War Three, and you have other uh, analysts who are looking at the situation saying, you know, this is potentially going to be the height of it right now. And while there could be threats or there could be uh, some kind of attacks carried out by Iran's proxies in areas around the Middle East, uh, that it may not kind of blow up into an all-out war. It just depends on who you're talking to right now. It also depends on how leadership in both Iran and in Washington decide to move forward. If the president decides that he wants to go and strike any of these 52 Iranian sites if he perceives there to be a threat, this could pose a problem. If Iran decides that they don't want to respond to this, but they decide to continue, say, uh, enriching uranium because they say they're going to pull out fully of this JCPOA now and and have nothing to do with that uh, that Iran nuclear deal, that could be something that provokes the United States more. There, there's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of what ifs that spark speculation, which kind of spark conversations that people don't want to have because we simply don't know where this is going to go. Uh, Many have said this plays right to Donald Trump's base and was a distraction from the whole impeachment process. That being said, and we've certainly seen that before, is this not a little extreme to be saying that? Well, I mean, look, it could have been a bit of a distraction, but there is precedent for what happened in 1998 during the Bill Clinton impeachment. He launched airstrikes uh, in the Middle East, uh, you know, within the kind of confines of that impeachment inquiry that was taking place against him. So uh, whether or not that was a distraction at the time, whether or not this was a distraction at the time, uh, both presidents saw an opportunity to move forward. There are some people who are saying, yeah, sure, this is uh, a bit of a distraction to the impeachment right now. But at the end of the day, that impeachment trial hasn't even started yet. Nancy Pelosi has not brought over that impeachment resolution or that pair of resolutions to the trial uh, to the Senate to start up this trial. So what potentially we could be distracting from is simply unknown. Let's expand on that. Uh, Where does this leave the impeachment trial? And as you said, it had been stalled anyway, as it's in the hands of the Democrats at this point. Why are they delaying this? Could this backfire for them? It it could backfire. But look, in the uh, last couple of hours or so, uh, we've now been told from former National Security Advisor John Bolton, that if he were uh, if he were subpoenaed rather to testify in the Senate when this trial ultimately starts, that at the end of the day he would come and provide testimony. Now there are people inside the White House, inside the administration, and some Republicans who feel that anything that Bolton says could be damning to the president because he has such intricate knowledge to what happened uh, between uh, the U.S. and Washington and President Trump and Ukraine, uh, linked to that aid that was being held back. Uh, But this is happening right now because the trial has been delayed. This could potentially be playing into the Democrats' hands right now by saying, look, we said that we were going to hold on to this and new things are coming back. There is also a call out there to say if John Bolton is going to testify in the Senate, why not just have him come and testify in the House as well, potentially put additional uh, uh, impeachment kind of charges against the president? Because, uh, you know, subpoenas and, and testimony isn't printed on blue and red paper. It's simply on a piece of paper that can be used by either chamber. Uh, So is this about process and procedure? We all assumed that once this hit the Senate, it would be done and over with anyway. Is this Nancy Pelosi trying to control more of that? It very well could be because what John Bolton has to say could potentially sway moderate or swing Republicans towards the Democratic side. We already know that there are some uh, Republican senators who are waffling right now on how to move, particularly uh, someone like Susan Collins, who's up for election uh, this year, or somebody like Lisa Murkowski 
Zelensky, who often falls out of line with the president, but sometimes will vote in line with the GOP. So allowing for someone like John Bolton to come in and speak, if Mitch McConnell actually allows this to move forward, uh, could potentially sway Republicans to move uh, into a vote to convict, which, again, plays into the hands of the Democrats. Uh, what, What about Mitch McConnell's take on this delay? Well, I mean, he said that he wants to get this done no matter what. He's already called himself, uh, you know, an impartial juror and said that once the resolution is put in his hand, he intends to try to get this through as quick as he can. If he can get that 51 vote uh, within the House to kind of cancel it all out, that's what he'll do. I mean, Mitch McConnell has called this kind of standing in line with the president, a sham and a hoax and simply wants to see it over and done with. These delays are kind of going against what he wants because he wants this to be wrapped up. He wants to be able to, uh, you know, acquit the president and let the president get back on to uh, doing the job that he was elected to do. But, you know, these delays, not only are they problematic for Mitch McConnell, uh, they could be problematic for the Democrats, but they simply are allowing more information to flood into the public, which Democrats are simply going to hope floods into their base. Does what happened in the Middle East, does, does that sway the public's opinion on Donald Trump when it comes to impeachment? Um, obviously, this drums up his base. Nothing like a good battle does. That being said, when you bring up things like like the war crimes issues in regard to hitting cultural sites and such, does this give the Dems more power? Does this give them more fodder? It it might, but it might simply not do anything. I mean, look, this is a president who has been accused of significant crimes over the last three years. And, well, he was a candidate for president, whether it comes to, uh, you know, egregious uh, accusations against women or whether it comes to tax evasion or whether it comes to anything that he's been accused of in office. It has not moved the needle. Uh, The latest numbers still show that President Trump has going, you know, after being impeached and, and heading into impeachment. A, a, a rating, a likability rating, an approval rating in the high 30s and low 40s, kind of creeping up to 45. It does not move. With the president now kind of uh, tangling up situations in the Middle East, we'll see if that makes his numbers fall anymore. But, you know, uh, politics are crystallized in the minds of Americans. And no matter what the president does or doesn't do, it is going to be very difficult to move people in, in, in either direction. When will we see movement on the impeachment trial? When Nancy Pelosi decides that uh, she is going to hand the documents over to the Senate, we know uh, that it might not happen this week because she's intending to uh, draft and table and vote on uh, a war resolutions, uh, war powers resolution uh, to deal with limiting what President Trump can do when it comes to the Middle East. That is supposed to happen this week. Whether or not she tries to tie that with impeachment is still to be seen. Uh, the reps, uh, the Republicans rather, are talking about changing the rules to somehow move this along. How would the public uh, feel about that? Well, I mean, look, the rules when it comes to Senate uh, impeachment trials are are fluid. They're up in the air. The Constitution lays out how the House has to do this, but it doesn't really lay out how the Senate has to do this. So there are options and there are possibilities for the Senate to prolong something or to delay something or to simply call it quits as fast as they can. Uh, you know, there is an exhausted American public out there who would like to see uh, everything kind of put to rest and allow for, uh, you know, a, a regular news cycle and a regular political cycle to kick back into gear which has been missing over the last couple of years. But there are still people who feel that the president should pay for what he did. So 
much like there is a solidified base for the president and against the president, it's the same with how politics works in the U.S. Some people simply want to see it move a little slower, and some people want things to be over and done with very quickly. Uh, what about his comments on cultural sites and, and religious sites and such? We know that this is a, a, a crime of war. It's, it's a war crime to, to touch these sites. We just saw this happen. Does this change public perception of him at all, simply because, uh, well, it, it just even considering what he's done to date, um, again, he's, he's, he's walking that fine line of what is legal and what is not, although Pompeo says, don't worry about it, we're staying within the law. I mean, and staying within the law is a very vague term when it comes to how this president and how this administration works. Will it change public opinion? That's anybody's guess right now. The president simply is using social media as a way not only to speak to his base, but to speak to Congress without having to deal with any blowback. I think what we would ultimately see is if the president decided to move forward on any kind of attack with a cultural target, not only has he violated or will he have violated international law, he will also have violated his own domestic law because uh, U.S. military, uh, you know, needs to deal with proportionality and needs to deal with the fact that you cannot, you know, go after something uh, if the sum of that is going to be greater than what was done to you. And I think if he goes against what the Constitution lays out, he's going to have another battle with him against uh, from from Democrats and likely from a significant number of Republicans. It's almost like he's creating another self-inflicted problem for himself over and above the one he's in. Which has been a problem for this administration yeah, yeah. since it started four years ago. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Happy New Year. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. In Ontario cannabis stores stocking their shelves with edible vapes and other products starting today. There's some concern it won't necessarily meet the government's goal of cutting off the black market. Uh, always a concern with this is that the supply is not there when these things first start and also the pricing. Uh, there was a press conference held by the OCS on the new cannabis proda- uh, products. Uh, we're going to hear from David Lobo, Director of Corporate Affairs, and Kevin Lamb, Senior Director of Merchandise. This morning, we started to sell the products that you will see today to our authorized retail store partners. Deliveries will begin on Monday, and they will get deliveries through the week. And we expect that they will bring products, put products on their shelves as quickly as possible thereafter. Products will also be available on OCS.ca towards the middle of the month initial stores potentially to sell out within the first week. We replenish stores on a weekly basis. If supply comes to us quicker, we can speed that up and and provide that to stores as quickly as possible. The initial deliveries will include a large number of vapes, some edibles, and a brand of tea. The OCS continues to support the broadest and deepest catalog assortment across the country. All right. To talk more about all of this and what it means, Brad Polos, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and with us now. Brad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Well, Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, And with the new year, new regulation, new laws, and new situations such as we have here. Um, We remember what happened, Brad, when this initially uh, started way back in October uh, in regard to uh, recreational cannabis being sold. Um, limited supply, uh, higher prices, and many said, you know, all this is doing is introducing people to the black market as opposed to halting the black market. We're now, of course, in the same situation with edibles. Does this does this ease the black market at all? I think the black market will probably in the short term benefit a little bit because what we're doing now is we're normalizing the use of cannabis in other forms. Uh, edibles, drinkables, and topicals, and, and other concentrated products as well. 
So, uh, and given this, you've already pointed out very briefly the fact that there's a bit of a price disadvantage, or well, I, I shouldn't say a bit, there's a, quite a large price disadvantage um, in the legal system. So I can actually see people trying the legal products, liking them enough that they might start buying the illicit ones. Uh, so is, is this in the end? I mean, the whole objective when this was legalized way back when was to try to curb the black market, try to, uh, to, to put a dent in it of some sort. Does this curb the black market or does this just introduce people into a new product? Uh, as I said, I think it might just do the latter, although, you know, certainly in the fullness of time, when the products are, when there are more of these different products, uh, lots of selection, when there's no chance of shortages, then I guess the legal system will have something of, a, of an advantage over where they are today because they didn't have those products prior to today. Uh, but until the government addresses Two key things, anyway, because they've now addressed one of the other ones, which was availability of different products. Um, availability of retail locations, especially west, sorry, east of the Manitoba-Ontario border. Uh, there's just a, a terrible, you know, uh, network of of retail stores in each of the provinces, uh, Ontario eastward, and Ontario's, you know, promising to fix that, but. It's going to be probably two years before we have the proper retail coverage in Ontario. And uh, we've all, we're already a year into legalization, so I just don't think that's forgivable on any level, really. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. What kind of process has have these products been through? Uh, we know what it was like to uh, legalize cannabis and, and what we have now. How has this process differ? How does this process differ from uh, the initial process? Uh, in, in other words, those of edibles. What sort of health? What sort of research? What sort of uh, is this very similar to getting other food products approved? Um, yeah, I would say so. And it's actually more the the facilities than the products. The government doesn't approve individual food products. They are approving individual uh, edible and drinkable and topical cannabis products because. Um, I guess it's, well, I'm, I'm assuming I, I should say that um, because they're so new and, and Health Canada has really never dealt with something like this. I think in the fullness of time, though, even the individual products won't need to be um, individually approved by Health Canada. That, that'll just become, I think, a regulatory and administrative nightmare. What is stopping the government from being competitive from a uh, from a standpoint, from a legal standpoint? Uh, I got a quote here from uh, Omar Khan, National Cannabis Sector Lead at Hill Knowlton Strategies, uh, saying that uh, I know the OCS wants to move towards a thousand stores, but eventually you're going to have to have a thousand people willing to participate in the legal market. They're only going to do that if they can be price competitive with the illicit market. Why can't they be? Oh, there are a number of factors at play there. So the first is that a lot of the illicit products don't go through as many stages of distribution. Uh, so they'll, you know, they may go directly from a dealer then to some, uh, sorry, from a grower to uh, a network of dealers and then directly to customers. So you've eliminated at least one step in the distribution process. Um, then add to that the fact that the legal uh, operators in the cannabis industry have all kinds of regulatory burden that the um, the illegal operators don't. So compliance and reporting and auditing and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, then there's, there's packaging that goes into the product that 
the, the illicit market doesn't have to worry about, and that can be expensive. And then the last thing is is taxes and and government markups. So we have we have tax an excise tax plus HST in Ontario anyway on all cannabis products. And then the government, the OCS, which is the, the distributor that that is the in between or the go between the um, the producers and the retailers, they're taking a markup. So all of those things added together mean that the illegal products enjoy maybe as as much as a you know a fifty percent advantage over the the legal ones. Uh, will there ever be? Will there ever be? Um, um a closer margin on price will there ever will they ever be competitive i i think they're going to have to be scotter this is going to be a huge bust and it'll be a there will be a lot of egg on the faces of a lot of politicians so yeah i think they're going to have to do it they seem to be coming to the reality slowly um and then the other thing is there will likely be a shakeout in the industry this year with respect to the producers and as the number of producers reduces then you could see some economies of scale come in there that may help the, the legal players as well. But unless the government addresses this taxation issue and gets less greedy with markups uh, at the distribution level, uh, or frankly, out of the distribution entirely, because there's no reason to have a government distributing a consumer packaged good, um, then I, I, don't think they're, I don't think they're going to succeed. Uh, you look at the tobacco industry, the alcohol industry, which are all heavily regulated here. Uh, can you put the cannabis industry into that same category? And by that, I mean um, many of us just go to the LCBO or to the beer store rather than uh, try to make our own or, or produce our own, where it seems in the cannabis world, that's a whole other different category. Can you take can you can you take the cannabis industry, which has had such a, a large black underground market, and 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 one where there's people who grow and know how to grow, and each person can grow plants. It it seems I don't know a bit easier, or is it than making wine or beer or such? Can you ever regulate this industry like the other? I don't think we'll ever get rid of the illicit market entirely. And I don't consider growing your own and making your own cookies to be illicit because that's illegal in Canada. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about actual, you know, purveyors, sellers of the product to individuals who will then go ahead and use it. I, I think we're going to have an illicit market for some time. It will diminish over time as the government finally wakes up and fixes the issues that are, that are here and that the industry has been screaming at them about since day one. Eventually, I think they'll they'll smarten up, and um, you know, we for example, the New Brunswick government has announced that they're going to get out of the distribution side. So hmm. um, that's, I think, a good that's a harbinger of better things to come. So I've never uh, been a fan of having the government involved on any level other than regulation, which is how they play in alcohol and tobacco. Uh, so obviously it's going to take a few years for this all to settle down and we realize what the model that everyone is going to use moving forward. Yes, I think we're looking at several years. That's right. Who is doing the baking? How are these products formed? Is it the same sort of scenario for those that are growing? Uh, and are the people growing involved in the baking? There's a lot of overlap. Uh, and I, I guess that's because it's a brand new industry. So there's a lot of companies that, frankly, to, to somebody who teaches strategy like me, seem to have a bit of a scatterbrained approach. You know, they're trying to do absolutely everything in the industry, which in general doesn't make sense. You know, this, this notion of vertically integrating and, and doing 
you know, everything from retail all the way back to growing the plant. There are very, very few industries where that makes any sense, and I don't think cannabis is, is one. Uh, but right now, yeah, we are seeing a lot of the larger players. So, you know, the Canopies and Auroras and, and, and folks like um, Solus Health, Terrasend, Haven Street, um, they're, they're all, all both growers of cannabis and are producing these products. But as the industry matures, what will happen is the, the cannabis flower and the cannabis oil derived from that will become an input. And the people that make food will be primarily just making food. It may have cannabis in it and may not, but, but they're, you, you don't have people growing wheat and then making cake mixes. Right. And hmm. in the fullness of time, that'll be the same case with cannabis. You'll either grow it and sell it to somebody to, to somehow process or smoke, um, or you'll be further along the chain and, and producing these higher value-added products. Uh, what about uh, the amount that a customer can purchase? Um, currently, limit customers to a maximum of thirty grams, or sorry, milligrams worth of product at a time, and won't allow any individual item to contain more than ten milligrams. The U.S., by contrast, have allowed products to be sold up to a hundred milligram packages in jurisdictions mm-hmm. where it has been legalized. Yeah, this is one of the big problems too. So, for for on a couple of levels, first of all. Let's talk about medical patients for a second, because they they often get left out of this. And let's remember that we wouldn't have cannabis legalization if it wasn't for the courts and for people that took the government to court for their right to grow it and use it and all of that. And those people now seem to be totally have, it's totally been kind of left by the wayside. Many of those users, they need those doses, like you mentioned, of perhaps as much as 100 milligrams, maybe even more. Can you imagine having to eat 10 chocolate bars in order to have your, quote, medicine? Mm -hmm. It's just beyond belief. Uh, An an interesting thing that uh, this person said from Hill Knowlton was, and I think this is similar to what you've just been saying, is the the OCS has the power to purchase goods goods from their producers, set the prices, and distribute them to retailers, noting such a system isn't conducive to lower prices. That's everybody doing everything, correct? Yeah. I mean, because if think about it. You've got this choke point in the middle. You've got hundreds of producers. And then uh, ultimately, we'll have hundreds of retailers in each province, or at least the larger ones. And you have a single entity in the middle. So they have all the buying power. Nobody can sell in Ontario if it doesn't go through the OCS. So they have all kinds of, of buying power, and they could use that to press, press prices down, which would be great. I think that part would be good. But then they also set the price at the retail side because they decide what the selling price for the retailers is. And that's where the problem is. So here we are, Brad, uh, over a year after the initial rollout and now edibles coming today. As you watched this happen way back when and are watching it now, any surprises for you? Anything happened here that you didn't think would? How do you think this has all been done? I, am, I, I, I was surprised at the low doses. So if, if, if we're going back, say, a year and I was looking forward to Cannabis 2.0, um, I'm actually also incredibly disappointed and so I guess in there would be surprised at the way the Ontario government has handled this file. Um, it's, it's just been an abomination. And they don't seem to be uh, being aggressive enough. Uh, they seem to have recognized that they have to fix it, but I don't believe they're being aggressive enough in terms of getting new, new stores rolled out. Uh, what does it say when Nova Scotia gets out of the distribution business? Uh, I think it tries to make some of the points I've already been yeah. making, which is that... There's really no role for the government to play in distribution. There's no need for it. There are, there are products that are much more dangerous individually. We can take alcohol and tobacco, but also take industrial products, 
acids and all those sorts of things. The government doesn't stick their nose in there just because they think they have to protect people from things. They simply regulate it. That's their job. It's their job to regulate, not to operate stores. Brad Polos has been with us, instructor, Ted School, uh, Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University, Ontario Cannabis Stores, introducing edibles, vapes, and other products starting today. Brad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, yeah, and I was telling this story. I, I meant to tell you earlier, and I forgot. But I'm watching uh, the World Juniors yesterday, and, you know, I was sort of in and out with the first two periods because I was angry and it was, you know, oh, man, this just doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. It was very tough, very exciting game, a uh, very fast game. And then the third period, holy smokes, everything went to hell in a handbasket. There were penalties, goals, this, that, the other, and, and just kept you really on the edge of your seat. So um, my boy and I are home watching this. And... Uh, the landline rings. I know what you're saying. You have a landline? Yes, I do. I have a home studio, so I need a landline because I do some interviews from home sometimes and then send them to work. So we're like one of the only people that have a landline, I know. I'm sorry. So it's gotten so bad in our house that it rings. No one answers it. And it's like, you know, me being an older guy, answer the phone. But it's just a landline, Dad. So what? Does that make it any less important because it's not to your own personal little device? I was going to say something, but I won't insult my kids that way. Um, And so uh, I'm sitting there and I'm watching. And, of course, I'm half deaf. So I've got the the TV just screaming. And is there a phone ringing? Do you hear the phone? Is Is that? Oh, that's the landline. Now, in, in a lot of cases, my, well, it does. I have, when my phone rings, it, it sounds like a landline because I, I thought it was kind of cute. Um, but it wasn't vibrating in my pocket, so I knew it wasn't that. So it's 3-3. You know how it all ended. It's 3-3 at this point. And it's the phone. Who is calling in the last few minutes of the third period of the Team Canada game when it's tied 3-3? Well, it's a telemarketer, of course, which is exactly why my kids won't answer the landline. I'm not answering it, Dad. It's just like a telemarketer. So I, I and, and then it's like, where is that phone? <laughs> where, where, do we, where do we keep that? So anyway, I had to run in the office and grab the actual, it wasn't even a cordless thing. The one I actually use to record. So, hello. Hi, this is such and such from, it wasn't recording, it was a live person. And I'm calling from the such and such survey company. It wasn't a telemarketer, it was an actual legitimate survey place. And they said, you got some time to answer a few questions for us. And that was the pause. And I said, you're kidding, right? I said, we're all busy watching the Team Canada game. No! And hung up. And I'm thinking, has this guy been doing this all afternoon? Getting the abuse from me because he's... Or or, or why not you just put the close for the day sign on? Or maybe there's people that weren't watching and he was hoping to get them. Anyway, uh, I digress. 
the World Juniors, uh, Canadian uh, Team Canada goes on to win in a very, very exciting game. To talk more about all of this, Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can listen to him every weeknight here on CHML. And, of course, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, how are you? I'm well, and I'm guessing uh, probably that your telemarketer uh, was calling from a far-off land who had no idea what the heck you were talking about. I don't think so, Scott, because it wasn't like a number one. Um, it didn't they weren't sa- trying to clean your ducks? <laughs> no, no, they weren't. They were. It was just a survey. So I think it was just um, um, a survey company, people that, you know, a company that any company would hire and say, can you can you do some polling for us? So, they, yeah, they weren't really even trying to sell me anything. It's so just- any poll that we see coming out in the next week, Assume that nobody watching is a true Canadian or a hockey fan and ignore any data you see in the next week. It was incredible, I thought. You know, and you know me, I'm a, you know, I'm a motorhead. I'm not the biggest stick and ball guy, but even for me, it's like, wow, I can't believe you're doing this. It's poor timing, but it, uh, anyway. it was, it was, it was an exciting. The only thing missing from that game was a final score of six to five. Yeah, because yeah. in Canada, in Canadian hockey history, most of the big Canada Russia games in six five, the seventy two series when Henderson scored, and all three games at Cops Coliseum in uh, nineteen eighty seven when the Canada Cup was here, six five is our Canada Russia official score. So that was the only yeah. thing yeah, got yeah. there. The rest of it was fantastic. Uh, how do you explain the third period? Because it seemed to be a lot of the same for the first two. It was it, it, it was pretty grinding it out, hockey, very quick. And then the last period was, well, it was like a junior hockey game. All kinds of things are happening and going wrong. Well, do you remember, you may not remember by year, but maybe by place, do you remember what happened in the 2011 World Juniors, which were played in Buffalo? Oh, yes. They talked about same, that during the broadcast. Same thing different team doing it. Yeah. That time, it was Canada that yeah. was ahead and was looking like the game was theirs. And then one Russian goal seemed to make all the uh, Canadian shrinkers tighten a little bit, and the whole ceiling fell in. Well, that was kind of the same seemingly here. As soon as Canada scored that weird goal that uh, bounced in off Connor McMichael's shin pad, mm-hmm. it's like all the Russian players just tightened up, and the Canadian players all of a sudden said, oh, okay, we know how to do this. And it was the mirror, well, the reverse mirror of the flip mm. side of what happened in 2011. And suddenly now the Russians are looking like they're lost and don't know how to control the game, and Canada's just pouring it on. So, uh, look, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fantastic game. And we commented, and I don't think it's the case, but my son and I, who were watching at the time, commented there were moments in that game that it looked faster than an NHL game. Mm, it was like very it was, fast. It was breakneck speed, and yeah. it's not because the NHL, I mean, it is yeah. full speed like that every time, but it was, I'll tell you what, and, and I don't mean to uh, put down any of the other junior hockey, but boy, if you watched any of the other, like just OHL regular season games compared to that, man, this thing was on hyperdrive. So like, it was just crazy. Uh, as you mentioned uh, in the uh, in the third period, a couple of quick goals there within a couple of minutes of each other brings Team Canada back into with a tie uh, when it did really seem hopeless at one point. Um, but then seemed, things seemed to go awry, and I remember there, you know, two and a half or so many minutes left in the uh, in the game, and and Russia has the man advantage with a penalty, and then by the time it was finished, that penalty was nullified, and it was Russia with the with the with the disadvantage, which it seemed in the last couple of minutes this could have been Russia's game. Sure, it could. 
circuit, and that's how these things seem to go. And, and when when you get going, and I mean, Canada just seemed to whatever momentum or psychology or whatever it is, they seem to believe it in the third period. And even when things start going wrong, then uh, you still are buying in. I mean, you, you see this with other with other teams that when they really, really, it's such a confidence thing in sports. When you really yeah. believe in what you're doing, mm. it doesn't always work out. But very often, it just gives you whatever. It, it's hard to explain. It's, it's one of those. It's one of those things that you can't quantify. But it just things seem to work out, and you seem to have an extra bit of energy, an extra jolt of whatever. And it's not only that. It's weird how um, confidence and luck seem to go hand in hand. When you're feeling confident, you yeah. seem to get the breaks. You create the luck, yeah. Uh, but even if you don't seem to, like even if you don't. Cr- a puck will hit a shin pad instead mm. of going through or something else. And, it, and then when it's going the other way, nothing seems to be going right. We can't buy a break, and then your confidence and that tie in together as well. But, boy, it just it, – I, I wasn't going to predict even halfway through that third period who yeah. was going to win. It seemed – you could see you could see Canada playing at a different level than they had in the first half of the game. It seemed when uh, Canada cleared it out and it went over the glass and it hit the camera, which yep. could have really changed the complexion of the game had that should penalty have been... It should have been a penalty. It, it, it certainly should, considering the camera is behind the glass, not yep, hanging over into the playing area. Um, it seemed that once that happened and Russia didn't get the penalty, that the wheels kind of came off it for them. They seemed to... They, they just didn't seem to come back from that. That's it. Yeah, and you're right. And and probably you give them almost a full two minute two man advantage. Who knows what happens? But I'll, I'll yeah. credit to one other to one other guy in particular. When I was a kid, I played goal in hockey, and I wasn't a really. Goalie. I was. I yeah. I, was, I didn't I, know I, that. I like to say that I was the safest goalie in hockey because the puck never hit me. <laughs> um, I loved it, and you know I played at some reasonable levels of you know reasonably competitive levels. But you know I was I was mediocre. But because of that, maybe because of that, maybe just because, you know, you can see this, I am forever impressed with the mental toughness of the goalies yeah. in games like that, yeah. where one mistake and that whole tournament could go down the toilet. And the goalie for Canada, Hofer, I mean, he made some saves and, and, and played at a level, and we've seen this from other goalies at other teams and other countries and wherever, at times, but I, I am just so blown away by the mental toughness of the goalie because all the pressure in the world is on them. Any other player on Team Canada or Russia, for that matter, can make a mistake, and there's always someone behind them potentially to bail them out from that mistake. The one guy that if they make a mistake, the entire game stops, the ref blows yeah. the whistle and points at them, and a big red light starts flashing is the goalie. And so he, he was, to me, he was spectacular. I have no idea if he's going to be a great goalie. There's been a lot of Team Canada goalies over the years that have been great in this tournament and then amounted to not very much. Hmm. And then there's been Carey Prices that have come along. Yeah. But I have no idea what he's going to be, but man, that guy gets all the credit in the world from me. Uh, and some bizarre penalties in the last uh, period, obviously. What's with the knocking of the sticks out of people's hands that are going up into the rafters? <laughs> we, How does we that happen? That. You don't see that in the NHL that much, uh, if ever. And you, you may see a stick it, knocked out of a hand, but you don't see it go <laughs> as high as the glass. Well, you see it usually. Usually, when it's called as a penalty in the NHL, it's, it's a slashing. It's a downward slash that knocks the stick out of the hand <laughs> yeah. towards the ice. 
and we were commenting, like, is no one actually holding on to their stick? Exactly. We, we, we truly, after the first one, uh, when Canada got called for it against the Russians, we actually yep. thought, so are you are you subconsciously holding it lightly so that if a Russian lifts your stick, it goes away. Yeah. I don't think that at that point in the game, it's like we need a tether. They got it. The stick's got to be tethered to them. They're flying all over the place. It's like this. It's like the string on the mittens. You got to attach. That's what I was thinking. It's exactly what I was thinking. Um, I don't think the player is thinking, Oh, if I hold it very lightly, it might get knocked. I don't think anyone's in that moment thinking it, but it was weird. I've, I've, I've never, I don't know that I've ever seen it happen like that in a high level game. Certainly not twice. And then the the penalty, the second penalty they got in that in, uh, the the last penalty they got in that sequence, where uh, playing with the broken stick. Well, that's that's. I mean, that's a standard one, and you rarely see it. Exactly, like they just. It seemed that the the, the wheels just fell off this for the Russians. Well, it, yeah, like a brain fart because it's, yeah, it's, you've been playing hockey for enough time. I mean, the kids are these. I call them kids. I mean, they are. They're seventeen, eighteen, yeah. nineteen. But that's still enough time. They've been playing since they were five. It's one of those rules that. It's muscle memory. When your stick breaks, yeah, you drop it. You just drop it. It's, yeah. it's similar to in baseball when you hit the ball. You don't run to first carrying your bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you hit it and you just drop it. Yeah. It's muscle memory. You might take a step or two. If you're Jose Bautista, you might flip it into the other dugout just about. But you drop the bat. You don't run down to first. And this year, you may recall, I don't know, but there was a guy, I can't remember who it was, who ran all the way to first base carrying his bat. Mm. And then tossed it away, and it was almost an international incident in baseball because yeah, yeah. it was such a. It's not a. It's not against the rule per se, but it's against the unwritten rules. Well, in hockey, it's a written rule. You can't play the puck with a broken stick, and yet, for whatever reason, as I say, brain fart. The moment he did, and he knew it. You, know, you saw the reaction. Yeah, he knew yeah. immediately that yeah. he had screwed up at that point. He was. I think he, was he not the team captain? I mean, it's a, it's just a huge moment to do that to your team. Uh, what about the last goal where Thomas uh, wins it? This is going to be the highlight on the highlight reel of the year, this play. I Normally, I would agree with you, and, and I think it will for sure, but I think that when people come back and look at this tournament in 10 years or when they start playing the highlights every, uh, you know, the, the, the pregame highlights pack and everything on TSN before every tournament, I think it's going to be the fact that Hayden, the guy who was the captain who was playing with some sort of dislocated or separated or banged up shoulder and yeah. still dressed and scored the tying goal. And that was a pretty that, goal. It was a butte. And, right. and it was a butte, Clark. Uh, yeah. I'm still in my Christmas <laughs> mode. Um, I think that's going to be the thing that becomes sort of the legendary moment, the, the injured captain who sucked it up and came out and played and scored the tying goal. Although... Look, uh, in any other, uh, Akil Thomas's goal may be that, and in any other tournament, that's the that's the one that we see forever. So we we may see both of those things replayed endlessly. And again, you know, I remember watching this live, and he was literally going and flying so fast he barely had his feet underneath him. And well, he didn't in the end, but it, just to see almost a, a diving kind of effort, it, it you know, my goodness, what what a great way to finish the game. It was inches away from being out of control. Yes. That he could have lost control of that puck and not got any kind of shot off at all. I mean, it was literally inches away. And it is, it, Scott, it's remarkable to me that these guys are the age they are. Yeah. I mean, they are they are still very young players, kids, and yet yeah. 
the level of talent that they have is is pretty remarkable. I mean, it really is in the level at which they're playing. And again, it's 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 not a dumping on junior hockey as a you know all through the year, but this is at an entirely different level than they are playing with their club teams mm-hmm. throughout the season. I mean, this is this is a, a monumentally different speed and skill level in this game in this tournament. Um, take the top five or six teams. The majority of the players who are on those five or six teams will be drafted into the NHL. I mean, these are almost all of the top undrafted, or in some cases, drafted prospects that are not in the NHL right yeah, now. Yeah, it's just a, it's a it's a it's a great tournament. All right, uh, can't let you go without asking your, your thoughts on. Uh, I don't watch uh, award shows; I find them boring, and m- many of, much of the stuff I haven't seen. Uh, that being said, there was so much hype around Ricky Gervais again hosting this, and also I must admit, my wife said she was going out with some friends to a thing, to like a little party thing that they were doing. Um, so I actually sat and watched uh, the monologue because I like Ricky Gervais. What were your thoughts on this? Political correctness versus comedy? Who won? Uh, I, I also don't watch the shows because uh, I won't say the word I often use when I'm talking about what these actors and stars do to themselves and to the other actors and stars. But it's a, uh, it's, uh, it's. <laughs> I find it just over the top and distasteful. We're so important. We're we're the we're so much better than you that you're going to tune in to watch us and that's ourselves and, on our betterness. And that's what Ricky Gervais seemed to counter last exactly. night. And boy, exactly. there were some laughs, but there was also some grunts uh, you from know, this audience. I only, I, did, I only saw, so I didn't watch the show. Yeah. I watched his monologue on Twitter this morning. And uh, boy, I thought it was perfect. I yeah. thought, because he, not on every sacred cow, but he teed off on so many sacred cows that yeah. you're not allowed to talk about and not allowed to say with celebrities. And he, you know, he poked fun at Greta Thunberg and yep. he poked fun at Jeffrey Epstein and at, you know, like all these things that um, that you're not really supposed to say. And they're and again, they're they're pious, self righteous wonderfulness with themselves. And when you know you think of the support that Donald Trump has, whether you agree with him or not, it's still very divided in that country. Um, you not know, in that room. <laughs> no, not for exactly. But you know, w- with the whole vegan thing and whatever, I- I'm wondering if America's looking at this with just as much agony as they're looking at Donald Trump. Uh, well, you mean as far as just being uncomfortable with again, you can you can take lots of issue with lots of stuff Donald Trump does, mm-hmm. but for these celebrities who are making millions and millions and millions and living a life that they don't have any concept what the average person is going through, even yeah. though, as Ricky Gervais aptly pointed out, they like to tell us how yeah. we're supposed to live, yeah. and yet you know we're supposed to to cut back on our emissions and everything else while they fly to the award show in their private jet mm-hmm. and then drive in a phalanx of limos to get there. And, you know, on and on and on. Look, I I think it's wonderful. I think people love it when you see the powerful, especially the the often self-righteous powerful, taken down a peg in public. And the best part is watching them, trying to decide a lot of them, especially when the joke is made at their expense. Exactly. They're the subject of the joke. Yeah. Uh, should I laugh here? Even exactly. though I probably want to go up and stab him in the eye with a fork. Knowing that there's a camera on you. Yeah. Knowing there's a camera. I guess I kind of have to laugh at this one. And a couple of them, Leonardo DiCaprio seemed to legitimately laugh at the joke about his young girlfriends, but yeah. a few of them, 
you yeah. got the sense yeah. that they were not thrilled that yeah. he had decided to poke at them. Tom Hanks didn't look comfortable at all times. Uh, Scott Radley has been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Make sure you are listening tonight. Uh, Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.